0: Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Emma.
1: And I'm Ryan, and today we're sitting down with Mariano Florentino Cuellar. Justice Cuellar served for nearly seven years on California's highest court, where he wrote opinions addressing a wide range of issues, including separation of powers and federalism, policing and criminal justice, international agreements, and climate and environmental policy. He also led the court system's efforts to better meet the needs of millions of limited English speakers. He served two U.S. presidents at the White House in federal agencies and was a faculty member at the Stanford University for two decades. A member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Justice Cuellar has published widely, including a book called Governing Security, The Hidden Origins of American Security Agencies. He is currently a member of the U.S. Department of State's Foreign Affairs Policy Board, as well as the 10th president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Justice Cuellar, thank you for joining us. It's a privilege to speak with you today.
2: Thank you, it's an honor to be here with both of you.
0: Um, So I want to start with your upbringing. I understand you were born in Northern Mexico and later immigrated with your family to California and attended high school here. Could you tell us more about your upbringing and how it affected your academic and career trajectory?
2: Thank you. Well, in many ways, I think my childhood was not that different from many kids growing up on the border where you're familiar with two countries, you have family on both sides of the border. You realize that the border between Mexico and the U.S. can be a complicated place with um, some uh, food for thought, with uh, TV and radio broadcasts across the border, people across the border. But in other ways, I think I I was lucky. I had uh, some parents who were keen to see my brother and me do well in school. They'd had some chance to live in the U.S. before. I'd had a little chance to live in the U.S., but mostly had been growing up there on the border. I lived in a house right in the center of a very bustling city called Matamoros, which is just in the northeast corner of Mexico, maybe 25 minutes from the Gulf of Mexico, right across from Brownsville, Texas. And two features of downtown Matamoros are worth remarking on. The first is that it was very crowded, somewhat with people who were using the border as a way station and hope to go somewhere else in Mexico or maybe to cross the United States or to find their way into, you know, some other part of Matamoros. But the other is that my grandmother on my father's side lived five blocks away. So a lot of my childhood in those border years was just going back and forth, back and forth from our house at one end of downtown about six or seven blocks away to my grandmother's house where there were dogs and cats. No, not cats, actually. There were dogs and many, many, many birds and always a great. Smell of amazing food. And I would say, if you ask me what that whole mix of experiences taught me, you know, running errands on the border and uh, going to the butcher shop and the fruit shop and crossing the border on foot to go to school when I was um, on scholarship going to a school in Texas for a while, I guess two things come to mind. The first is that almost everything that seems simple on paper, like where one country ends and another begins, is complicated in practice, how you administer things, implement things, like what actually happens at the border, what happens when you run a city that's both for people who are traveling and itinerant as well as people who are the long-term. And then probably the other is that countries are different and certainly the US is very different from Mexico. I feel very lucky to be an American. I think often about my Mexican culture, but I feel very lucky to be an American. But it's also true that countries are interdependent, and no matter how hard they try, issues involving water quality and air quality and transnational crime and migration and public health are constantly entangling countries together.
1: How would you say that community where you grew up and that sort of ongoing relationship between America and Mexico has changed over the years since since you were a child.
2: So it's changed somewhat. I went back very often in, in the early years when I'd moved away, probably at least once a year. Now I go less often. So as trade between Mexico and the U.S. increased, between Texas and Mexico in particular, you had more and more assembly plants that uh, assembled car parts and electronics and whatnot. You had more women in the workforce, often recruited to work in these assembly plants. I think another dimension is that as the city of Matamoros grew and its outskirts grew and you had Walmarts opening and whatnot, you also had at the same time probably a rearrangement of the illicit, more uh, transnational crime side of things where – and this is a story that's told in more detail elsewhere, but but I followed it with some interest from a distance and felt like I could imagine pieces of this playing out where over time the – some of the drug trade, which was more heavily centered in South America initially, but using Mexico as a way station, came to be more focused on Mexico itself. And also, at the same time, some of the, uh, you know, relationships probably between different folks who were involved in illicit activity that were more cohesive at one point became more fractured, which meant there was more fighting. So the combination of more transnational criminal activity in Mexico and more fighting around it made Matamoros sadly more chaotic, a bit more violent, more challenging for a lot of people who were there. My own childhood had less exposure directly to that, but there was a sense even back then that you could not ignore that the city was a way station and a lot of transnational criminal activity. And since then, I think it got more complicated.
0: How do you believe the conversion around national security has changed since you published Governing Security, the Hidden Origins of American Security Agencies in 2013? Where do you think we are headed?
2: Well, in many ways, the conversation has changed quite a bit. In other ways, I think it's not changed that much, or maybe it's gone in in some circle. And I will not claim for a moment that my book changed the conversation that much, although some people have read it and they tell me they found interesting things there. So first, you have to remember that when I started teaching at Stanford in 2001, which is now a whopping 22 years ago, that's a scary thing to say. (laughs) Uh, So that was the year that the 9-11 attacks happened and the brutal uh, damage on the U.S. played out. And so, so much of the conversation about national security at that moment involved a catching up of the – or a reconciling of the traditional perspective that focused on country-to-country geopolitical conflict and uh, complex you know nation-states that had their own armies and militaries to a perspective that was more focused on non-state actors, the risk of terrorism, the permeability of borders – And given everything I just told you about my life in Matamoros, which was in most respects a happy life, but it was not disconnected from those issues, I found the conversation in some ways going in a direction that was not unfamiliar to me. So I got drawn into doing some early work around trying to understand how do these transnational actors work? What are their incentives? How do they learn as organizations or networks? Like where do they get information from? How do they deal with intelligence or administration of finance, right? I wrote a bit about the laundering of money, how you hide the proceeds of criminal activity and make them look legitimate, how that relates to different kinds of criminal activities, what it was that the financial system could and could not maybe tell us about uh, activity connected to terrorism, how to balance those concerns with legitimate concerns people had about privacy or about protecting you know, the uh, various kinds of rights that we consider important in this country around free speech and freedom of association. So in a way, what my, my point begins by saying that that was an inflection point for the discussion of national security. By the time I wrote Governing Security— The conversation had begun to change again. It's not to say that people had stopped thinking about those brutal attacks or about what was happening with respect to the U.S. presence in uh, countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. But at the same time, there was also an appreciation that there were other complex risks that the U.S. should prepare for, including changes in geopolitical power in places like Asia. And I was then trying to bring in a third perspective, which was not the non-state actors and traditional geostrategic security. It was a theme that went back earlier in history to when nation states were just being created in Europe. And then later on, it resurfaced intensely around the time of the Roosevelt administration, and then certainly again around the end of World War II. And that was the idea that you could not be an effective provider of security if you did not also meet the domestic needs of your population. And this notion of like, how do you build military and geopolitical strength, but also provide a measure of well being to your people became pretty central in my work. So, just very briefly, one more uh, riff. I'm probably talking too much, but if you don't talk in a podcast, then what happens, right? Exactly. So, but so. So I was trying to say, like, take a look at the whole creation of the Department of Homeland Security around a set of priorities involving non-state actors and terrorism. And compare that to the way Franklin Roosevelt approached this notion of security as both domestic and international. And you get different agencies, different architectures of government, different ideas about where the trade-offs are. And I just found that really interesting.
1: So I think with your uh, experience in public service being split between, you know, California's a state and in the federal government as well, I think you have a really unique perspective on this idea of inside drivers of international policy. And I wanted to ask, how can uh, someone with a role in just a state government and the California state government have an impact on determining global policy? Think about all
2: the issues that matter to people in California. Let's start with A farmer in Fresno, okay? So she cares about getting water for her farm. She cares about the uh, amount of dust that might be in the air and how that might affect her kids. She cares about whether her workers and her kids are going to get sick from a pandemic. She cares about whether people in other countries are going to be able to buy her products. She cares about whether there is a war going on that disrupts food supplies in parts of the world that then change prices for her. She cares about whether the U.S. and Mexico reach some agreement on migration that affects her access to the labor force. That's just one person in California. Now add, you know, a software engineer somewhere in Santa Clara or uh, somebody who works on tourism in Orange County. And you begin to tell a story where if you want to be responsive to the needs of people in California, the full range of things that people are concerned about, the well-being of their kids, pollution, you know, the innovation in the economy – you have to think about the global context, and what better place than California to think about that, because nobody should forget that we're part of the United States, that we are well represented in Washington, that we benefit from our deep ties to the rest of the country, but we also are highly dependent on international trade. We are the probably the greatest experiment in multicultural democracy in the world, uh, or one of the greatest, where we mix people from all over the world. You mentioned my work on language access, just to kind of highlight the point. Do you know that there are like 210 languages spoken in California pretty routinely? And that's like more than like seven people speak the language. That's like a lot of people speak each one of those languages. From millions to a smaller number, but more than more than a tiny number. And If you just think about what that means, like all those of us who get to share in the state, guide its direction, figure out how to work together to solve problems of building infrastructure or getting our schools to work better or, you know, promoting global cooperation in a way that will serve California's and the country's interests, I think it just is impossible to avoid. Now, when I think about history, there's another component to this, which is there are big – developments that have happened in history that affect the entire world that have had their epicenter in California. The growth of the commercial internet, the rise of the media entertainment uh, behemoth that is Hollywood, the um, development of nuclear weapons, which were run by the University of California, although portions of that work happened, of course, in Los Alamos in New Mexico, Um, And for plenty of time, we were, of course, an epicenter for lots and lots of emissions and greenhouse gases. So if you put that all together, then you could also say we have not only uh, a benefit we can derive from being thoughtful about global policy, we also have somewhat of a responsibility to engage with how to make the world better.
0: Looking back on your long career in public service, where do you see your largest impact and which role did you enjoy the most?
2: With my kids, I hope. <laughs> I, I'm not sure they would agree, but I would say, uh, you know, tr- trying to reconcile just having a happy family life with uh, all the stuff I've been lucky enough to do is a big thing for for my wife and me. Uh, we appreciate the chance to have the the jobs, the opportunities we do, and to still attend to that. But I think let me let me divide it up into maybe three places where I hope I've made some some difference. So first I would say in education, where we are in the middle of a beautiful uni- college campus and what feels like a vibrant community of learning, and I look back at, Twenty years of teaching and think about all the students I've been lucky enough to teach and to learn from, what they're doing, what challenges they're facing, and so that's sort of one is doing my part to try to prepare them to do their thing. Second, in the world of law, it feels to me like in addition to preparing a bunch of lawyers, just having the privilege of working with colleagues to try to be honest, faithful, and uh, Very specific about where we can decide cases and resolve disputes at the court, whether it's criminal justice or torts or issues involving civil procedure or constitutional law. Just being able to do that for almost seven years and looking back at some of the opinions I was able to write. Often with the great benefit of great input from my colleagues, I feel very lucky. And that also gave me a kind of ringside seat into California as it changed. Like what's happening in San Diego? What's happening in Fresno? What are people arguing about in Monterey County? Like how are they dealing with the water shortages over there? Like all of that would come in the form of these detailed memos of petitions that um, and of course the, the the petitions themselves that people would file hoping that their case would be granted review at the court. So I felt like every week I was getting immersed in California what was happening across the state. And that fed into our efforts to make an impact by just judging the cases fairly. And then third in the policy work that I've done at both Carnegie but then earlier at the White House and the Treasury, I think it all comes down to trying to be intellectually honest at a key moment. So the the legislation that I worked on involving... Tobacco and food safety and sentencing changes in the federal government, the work on language access, which is kind of between law and policy, trying to open doors for people to be able to navigate the legal system without uh, without having to struggle in a language they can't fully understand or speak. I feel like if half of that at least had a little bit of an impact and moved the needle, I'd feel really lucky.
1: So, considering that that long career you've had at the White House, the Treasury, Stanford, the California Supreme Court, and now the Carnegie Endowment. If you could do it all over again, would you follow that that same path? Uh, well,
2: I would say we've probably all made, I so when I interviewed law clerks for uh, when I was at, at the court, I would generally at some point, turn to away from how do you see the legal system and like talk about a legal problem you find interesting, and then I'd ask them this question, I'd say, If you're like me, you've probably made a lot of mistakes in life, and so just talk about one mistake you've made and what you learned and uh, how that that worked. And there are many things that I would do differently at the micro level, like in terms of like a week or two in my job at the White House and where did I just press too hard in some cases or not hard enough in other cases or maybe – You know, say something at a meeting that really did not fully show my appreciation for work that had already been done. Like, but I would say, macro. If I take a step back and think about the big picture, you got to allow for some degree of uncertainty. Like, I knew when I was in law school, things like, I want to work in public service, I want to have an impact on education in some way, I want to be continuously learning. I want to have some connection to the state of California because I feel like it's given me such an opportunity to, to be in this country and to just you know have, have the life that I've had. I didn't know how that would come together, like in what sequence, what steps. I knew probably it would be useful for me to have a few key mentors that would kind of look out for me, help me avoid bigger mistakes, but I also was probably pretty clear that I couldn't hyperplan it all out. So I would say building in a little room for like playing the joints, a little bit of missed opportunities here and there, some uncertainty, some ways to surprise yourself, some risks that you take even where everybody else might be saying like, look, this is the safer path. Do this job for two or three years. And then, you know, everything is easier after that. I think it's good to, to not have it all be written out in advance.
0: Um, what advice would you give to students who hope to follow your footsteps in a career in public service?
2: First of all, I would say they probably know more than they realize, and any one of those students could probably teach me a ton about a bunch of things, beginning with their own lives, which are really interesting. But I guess I remember in law school, and probably there was even a little bit of this, like other people would reflect this tendency, and maybe I had it even a little bit at one point, which was, I want to work on public service, policy, international issues, but I want to work on all of it. I don't have any particular deep interest in any one thing. And over time, I was kind of lucky to fall into a few places where between my past life experience and something I found really intriguing about an issue, I began to develop a kind of uh, somewhat more textured understanding, which generally builds humility, because like the more you realize, the more you know, the the more you realize what you don't know. So the start for me was when I left law school, and before I clerked, I went to the treasury for two years, and I worked a lot on cross-border flows of money and goods, particularly guns, that were unlawful in some way. So you can see how that connects a little bit to what I described about work like growing up in northern Mexico. It was also a clear connection between like regulatory policy, international issues, law and justice. And I began to really kind of get a feel for how those issues were playing out, what governments did deal with that, how you try to spot corruption using a combination of intelligence, maybe even early algorithms. And that built further interest in this question of how government agencies make decisions and work. Later, I got into regulatory rulemaking and public health and migration and eventually kind of cyber law and artificial intelligence. So one piece of advice would be try to start with one or two things that you can go deep in that are like good enough to hold your attention so that then that gives you insight into how to ask questions and how to wrap your mind around something different.
1: All right, we have just enough time for one more question. Could you tell us a little about a book, a song, a quote, a movie, something that's been on your mind lately? So I just
2: watched The Godfather again. What an incredible movie. Oh, my gosh. If anybody is listening to this and has not watched The Godfather, go and see Vito Corleone do his thing. And I'm very tempted to imitate him right now, but I'm going to try to resist that temptation. Although if you ask me nicely, maybe. Uh, so why does The Godfather resonate with me? So, so we... We were in—my uh, my, my son, my wife, and I had a little time off and were with some friends in uh, Palm Springs, and we decided we wanted to just watch the movie because it uh, had been a while since we'd seen it, and it just blew me away again. I just thought there's so much in that movie about politics, about institutions, about family, about culture clash apropos of navigating multiple cultures, about trust— about the United States and the immigrant experience, about power. Like, and it struck me that sometimes we set out to do things that may not be all thought out in our minds. That's probably a theme of this. And for me, it goes back to the unruliness of the border in some ways. And we might have a partially formed plan and then somebody else comes and helps us out just like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, I guess. He was like director number three that was offered the project and that was an interesting novel, but like who knew if this movie would succeed and somehow just everything comes together brilliantly and the result is better than anybody's plan, than any one person. There's no, like you can't blame it all on uh, Marlon Brando's acting or Al Pacino or Francis Ford Coppola or Mario Puzo's book, or anything. It was like just the magic of it all. The movie Blade Runner, which is a very different kind of movie, although the scenes of L.A. in the 21st century in the the near future reminded me sometimes of the sort of neon light in downtown Matamoros at the time I saw the movie, similarly I think is just brilliant beyond anything Ridley Scott could have pulled off by himself. So, you know, there's something there about the value of teamwork, but also about how... Sometimes we accidentally end up being greater than anything we could have imagined. Um, We just have to be ready to take that leap and humble enough to realize that we need other people to do it.
0: Well, that's unfortunately all the time we have today. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you both. I really enjoyed this and appreciated your questions.
1: And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry.